Hi, I'm Allison Kulo. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. Perhaps no institution more closely associated with the financial wizardry performed on Wall Street than Goldman Sachs. It is the Tiffany's of investment banks, the firm that young MBAs from the most prestigious business schools in the U.S. and abroad line up to interview with. It prides itself as a paragon of meritocratic capitalism, a place that is successful because it is filled with the best and brightest striving to create positive returns for its clients. And it rewards those hardworking employees with a glittering amount of money. The story of one woman's career at Goldman Sachs is laid out in Jamie Fiore Higgins' new book, Bully Market, My Story of Money and Misogyny at Goldman Sachs. The workplace she describes is one that is not only incredibly demanding in terms of time and pressure, but one that is dominated by a bro culture and an atmosphere of misogyny where the reality is far from the protective policies documented on paper. We're very lucky to have Ms. Higgins with us this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Jamie, can you start by sharing a little bit about your background and what drew you to Goldman Sachs in the first place? So I received an undergraduate degree in mathematics from a small women's college in the States in Pennsylvania. And when I was entering my senior year, I was figuring out what I wanted to do next. And I actually wanted to be a social worker. <laughs> And I even took a personality test to the career office that pointed to that as well. But my parents had other plans for me. I can't blame them. They grew up um, in very modest means, pulled themselves out of poverty. And the directive was, we just helped you fund a very expensive college degree and you need to get the best job possible that makes the most money. And in 1998, that was Wall Street. One thing that I... And so I... Oh, keep going. Please. please. Well, no, so I made it my mission to get a job and talking about the Tiffany's uh, label of Goldman Sachs, I went to a Wall Street... I went to an event on campus that Goldman hosted and I was mesmerized by the woman speaker who really talked about an environment where they wanted varied backgrounds, they wanted women, they wanted people to blast through the glass ceiling. And she had this really attractive combination where she was smart, intelligent, was able to command a room, but also had a very engaging softness about her that she was just seemed also really kind. And so I went to that event I went back to my dorm room. I called my mother and I said, I'm not sure what Goldman Sachs does, but I want to work there. And so then I made that my mission senior year to get a job at Goldman Sachs. Can you help me understand what Goldman Sachs does? Because I think many of us do wonder uh, what they do. Yes. So Goldman Sachs is a global investment bank. They do so many different things from mergers and acquisitions. When two companies want to, you know, merge or one wants to take over another, they do advisory business there. They manage wealth for very um, affluent families. And we also facilitate sales and trading, which is what I did. So in my business, we facilitated short selling, which is a strategy a little bit different from, you know, normal people feel you have to buy a stock at a low price and then sell it at a higher price. This is a flip of that order. This is where hedge funds or super wealthy individuals actually sell stock at a high price with the hopes that it drops and then they buy it back at a lower price. And so I worked in a group that facilitated those types of trades. 
you know, as you read the book, even the intake process sounds a lot pretty intimidating. Can you describe a bit about the interview and orientation process you went through to become a Goldman Sachs employee? Sure. So for me, I had 40 interviews, four zero <laughs> interviews to get my job at Goldman Sachs. And it was an arduous process. It took months. I was interviewed on campus. Then I was interviewed at the local regional office, which in my case was Philadelphia. Then I was invited to a soup a, which is kind of like speed dating, where I interviewed, um, I faced a long corridor and behind each door were a couple professionals and I interviewed for one for 30 minutes, then I moved to the next door and interviewed for 30 minutes, then I moved to the next door and interviewed for 30 minutes. And then finally, at that point, I was deemed Goldman hireable. And then I started interviewing on actual businesses to make sure that I was a good fit for their actual businesses. Now, the irony was, once I got to Goldman, I encountered a lot of people who had only had four or five interviews. And those people, either had parents who worked at Goldman or were neighbors of a Goldman partner or parents were clients of Goldman. So there was definitely different ways to on-ramp to Goldman. And I definitely on-ramped as someone who had zero connections to Wall Street or the firm itself. So you described the difference of your interview process with that those of um, people who had backgrounds um, and uh, kind of maybe family connections or others. What else did you see with regards to the culture at Goldman with, um, from people, the difference between people with moneyed backgrounds and those without? Yeah, it was definitely a story of the haves and the have not. So when I finally got my job and I started at Goldman, I realized pretty soon that it was a punitive system. So for example, on that first day when I went to orientation, they locked the doors at seven o'clock. So if you weren't on the right side of that door, you had to get a signed permission slip from your department partner, which would be equivalent to your like boss's boss or your boss's boss's boss. So it was a very punitive environment. But what I realized early on that a lot of people were fluent in this language of Wall Street. In fact, a lot of the people I worked with had been managing their own portfolio since they were 13, where I was just figuring out what in the world was going on. And so what I found was there was an element of those with connections and those who didn't have connections. For someone like me, I felt like I hit the lottery getting this job. It was like something my parents could have never dreamed that one of their kids had. So to me, I had this, I won the lottery, I had the winning ticket, I didn't wanna lose it. But yet for a lot of these kids where the onboarding was so easy, where they were able to just walk in after a couple interviews, they had this laissez-faire attitude like, no matter what they did, they would be protected. And that theme is what I found throughout my career, that if you had the right connections, you were allowed a lot of leeway in terms of your behavior and your production because you had air cover, you were protected. But you describe a, a career that was very successful, notwithstanding this lack of you know, the, uh, the money background. Talk a little bit about what you had to do to morph into what you called Jamie from Goldman. Yeah, so I started and I just worked my tail off. 
I was coming from behind. Like I said, no background in, no background in finance. So just worked my tail off to be successful. And I always think about my grandmother who helped raise me, grew up in, during the depression and always had that mindset of, well, if you pick an, up enough pennies, you'll get a dollar. So I was what you would call that kind of scrappy, hungry person where I stuck my head down, I made great inroads with my clients and I started doing well. Um, but what happened was that was kind of at a cost because as you get more into the, as I got more recognized, I started getting a taste of more of this toxic environment. For example, when I first started working at Goldman, I like to call it the white noise of Wall Street, that kind of locker room mentality. I really try not to pay attention to it. I kept my eye on the prize. I worked hard and I did well. However, when I got more senior and I was viewed as a threat, that's when that kind of um, gender discrimination, that toxic culture became more attacking and they kind of went after me. And so what I found was as I got more senior and I made more money, I was forced to make some decisions um, in terms of advocating for myself and others and keeping my mouth shut. And I always say I was really good at Goldman because I was smart and I worked incredibly hard, but I was really good at keeping my mouth shut and looking away and not reporting bad behavior. Many understand that once you enter a world like Goldman Sachs, uh, your work becomes your life. Can you talk a bit about what accommodations were made with respect to work-life balance for the employees there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what, what I, I would highlight is that kind of dichotomy between what they want and what happens. In fact, I'll never forget, I was pretty junior at the firm and our partner comes out and says, the people survey has come out and we have a problem with work-life balance. So one day a week, everyone gets to leave at four o'clock and go enjoy your afternoon and your families. That lasted two weeks because no one wanted to be the person who did it and the partner didn't do it. So I think Goldman is very good about saying work-life balance is important. Certainly in my experience, I saw a lot of memos about it. I saw encouragement, but it's not modeled in the action. So then it becomes no more than just a fluffy talking point that doesn't materialize into anything really changing. So in order to be successful at Goldman, I left my house every morning at 4.30 in the morning. I didn't get home until 8 p.m. or even more like 10 or 11 or midnight if I went out with clients. So you could just imagine, it's not really conducive to having a family life because all your waking hours are at the firm. You paint many scenes of lavish entertainment with colleagues and clients, but as you read about it, what comes through is this kind of angry, entitled arrogance. Was, was it any fun? I will say I had great times with my clients. So there are definitely occasions. I was actually catching up with a former client just yesterday. We were talking about going out to the US Open and seeing Tiger Woods play and it was a great time. So there were good times and sometimes pocketed in, but the vast majority of the time you're, you're out, you're enjoying these amazing restaurants, amazing food, shows, games, but you're not with the people you really care about. And the people you're with, from my experience, many of them just didn't have values that aligned with mine. So it ended up just being work, but at just really fancy venues. I can understand. 
going back to Goldman um, and how you had described, you know, they talk about wanting people to break the glass ceiling and, and, and how, if you start there, where your career can go. Can you describe the, how the progression path at Goldman worked? Sure. So you're hired in as an analyst, which is a trainee for a few years. Then you make associate, which is kind of in your mid-20s. And then in your late 20s, you make vice president. And most people make vice president, and then that's where most people stay. And then what's above that is the managing director title and then the partner, which is even more exclusive and elusive. And so for me, what I found was as I was recognized and went up the corporate ladder, once I was a senior vice president tagged with being good enough to make managing director, and then certainly when I made managing director, it became very, very difficult to be successful and it became, you, you were targeted, you were targeted. And that's really when I saw the behavior come out, the misogynistic behavior, the discriminatory behavior. And so it's no surprise when you look at Goldman's numbers, Goldman does an amazing job hiring, for example, women, 50% of women come in at that analyst level, but at the partner level, it's less than 20%. So although they, bring people in, they don't create a culture where women, for example, have sticky careers and end up staying. And I think that's a testament to the environment that doesn't let diverse people thrive unless your, your, your interests and your values align with the corner office you're in trouble. And so for me, although I was a successful woman, although I made that exclusive title of managing director, the way I did it was just towing the party line and being the mouthpiece of the guy in the corner office, not advocating for myself and certainly not advocating for the other women who sought support from me. And that's something I'm not proud of. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, because I want to shine light on these big corporations, the power they wield and what people are forced to do to be successful and the cost, the personal cost it takes. Let's let's talk a little bit about about the misogyny that is actually you know part of the title of the book. One one of the things you talk about is how misogynistic behavior was tolerated uh, to the extent that it was accompanied by business production. Can you give us a couple of examples of things you saw that uh, would surprise people in terms of the kind of behavior manifested? Yeah, so I can just give one example of a colleague who assaulted me. Um, I work, he worked for me at the time and I had to change um, his client coverage, the client he was covering, because rumor had it he was having an affair with the client and that wasn't appropriate. So I changed him off the client. I pulled him into an office for a private meeting. He pinned me against the wall, started choking me, told me he wanted to rip my effing face off. It was, as you can imagine, a very upsetting situation. Um, luckily, it de-escalated quickly and I was fine. And so the next day I reported it to my manager. And my manager said to me, well, you can report this to HR if you'd like, but I'm not getting rid of him because this gentleman had something better than a 4.0 from Harvard. He was a scratch golfer. And he got my partner and all the other partners onto all the exclusive golf clubs across the country, Pebble Beach, Baltistraw, Augusta. And that allowed 
our partners to entertain the biggest funds on the street. And so there's a perfect example where, you know, that character, that behavior should have not been tolerated for a hot second. He should have been shown the door, but instead his business contacts and his ability to get people on nice golf courses protected him. People at Goldman make staggering amounts of money. Did you come across anyone who was really happy with their lives? <laughs> I always say there seems to be an inverse relationship between money and character. I know for me, the more money I made, the more my character declined. I will absolutely say Goldman is a big firm and there are plenty of people who if they're working in the right organization within the firm, are able to strike balance. I know plenty of decent men and decent women who work there today. I will say, though, that the more pressure the environment is and the more money that's at stake, and it's not just the size of the money, the absolute value of the money, it's the way bonuses are structured. So, for example, if you make a lot of money, you don't get that money divided by 24 two times a month. No, 70% of it, 80% of it, you wait all year long. They're constantly dangling that carrot. And that structure really brings out the worst in people. So will I say that, of course, they're kind people at Goldman Sachs, but that environment, when you have the wrong people in the corner office because their behavior is tolerated because their business is successful, it's an environment that's at the ready to destroy people's personal lives. Your career ultimately explodes after an incident at a karaoke bar. What happened and how did yeah. it lead to the end? So I had said earlier, I was really good at keeping my mouth shut, not protecting women who came to me with stories of uh, discrimination and harassment. Well, finally I was out at a client event and my boss at the time used a racial epithet on a person of color who worked at this karaoke bar. And something shifted in me there. It was as if all these years I was living in this dysfunctional family, but nobody saw what was going on. We had this beautiful house on the block and no one knew the craziness that was going on inside. But having it happen in public really showed me how toxic it was. And I said, for the first time, I'm sticking my neck out, I am calling human resources, and I'm making a report because it's the right thing to do. And certainly at Goldman Sachs, they have a whole division for this. And they even had a tagline, if you see something, say something. So I called, I was promised anonymity. And then the next day, like a scene out of The Godfather, my partner pulled me aside and told me I had gone against the family and that he had treated me like a daughter. And by going and talking about what happened within our department to human resources, I have gone against the family. And then just a few months later, during reviews, after over a decade of stellar reviews, year after year after year, my review scores dropped. And I realize now, after writing this book, my experience isn't unique. I have heard from hundreds of people, many of them saying, you know, Jamie, your book has really made me feel understood because I made a complaint to HR. Six months later, my review dropped. Six months later, I was fired. And now I'm kind of seeing the pattern. I was never fired. I left on my own, but I knew once I 
let what was going on in my department see the light of day, they were going to punish me. You had such promise when you were beginning at Goldman Sachs. What would you say to a young female or someone, uh, you know, black, indigenous and other people of color MBA candidate who was thinking of starting a career at Goldman? When I went to that first Goldman event and I was wowed by that amazing woman, the Goldman Sachs tagline was minds wide open. My tagline to young people today is eyes wide open. Really get a sense of what's going on in these firms. Don't just believe the marketing pitches. And I feel that there are plenty of opportunities in this world. For me, Goldman made me think I was nothing without their money, nothing without their name. And I realized my success had more to do with me than them. So I want young people to feel autonomy in their careers, not to bow down to employers, but to rather see themselves as a the CEO of their own careers and make sure they align themselves with firms where they are paid well, where their values align with the firm's values, and then they can have a work-life balance. And if they find themselves in an organization that is not healthy, to not do what I did, to have the courage to walk away, because there's an abundance of opportunity for smart, hardworking people. You know, early in the book, you you sort of describe a story of putting on what I what sounded to me like a kind of body armor, where you be, went from who you are to Jamie from Goldman, as you sort of repeatedly refer throughout in the early chapters. Yeah. And now you're gone. And that has to be a fundamental change of identity. Talk to us a little bit about your life post-Goldman. What have you done since and how does it feel? Oh my gosh, you are so spot on. The months after I left Goldman, I was depressed because... Being Jamie from Goldman, being a managing director at Goldman was my sole identity. And I didn't know how to exist in this world without it. Um, and so for me, these six years I've been gone has been a real exploration. And I have realized, again, that all the things that made me successful, I still have. I didn't leave them at Goldman's door. <laughs> They're still a part of me. And that was a real, I, it took a lot of work for me to realize that. And so... In the time since I left Goldman, I got training as a life coach. So I work with professionals all in during their career, the beginning, the middle, the end. I work with young students about honing in on leadership skills. And I wrote my book. And so I have to tell you, in my case, the grass is greener. It's amazing to live in a world where you can be recognized for your intelligence for your contribution and not be berated while doing so and being in a work environment where you know all the bad decisions I made during my career were coping mechanisms to cope with this toxic pressure cooker of, of an environment and it's so nice to have designed a new workplace for myself where not only am I doing good and interesting work but that I can look myself in the mirror while I'm doing it. We've been talking to author Jamie Fiore Higgins about her new book, Bully Market. It's quite an interesting read, and we've had a quite an interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us. Last week, Mountain West Capital Network announced Hydrojug as the top-ranked company in the 2022 Utah 100. Now in its 28th year, the Utah 100 is Mountain West Capital Network's annual list of the fastest growing companies in the state. Jason Roberts and Ryan Dent join us this morning to talk about last week's event. 
Jason and Ryan, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. It's Good great morning. to be here. Thank you. Well, let's begin by giving listeners a bit of a background. Can you tell them what Mountain West Capital Network is and who are your members? What do you do and who are your members? Yeah, I'm happy to. You know, the Mountain West Capital Network really celebrates and recognizes really the amazing achievements in the business community in Utah. Um, you know, these hopefully inspire and they motivate. And they also see the additional entrepreneurship that we see throughout the state. You know, our membership is really open to um, anyone, any business professional who's interested in networking with amazing companies, executives, and, and entrepreneurs. So, you know, the, the key to our success, though, is our strategic sponsors. And those are companies who are really intimately involved in making these companies in Utah successful. So it includes the accountants and the bankers and the attorneys and capital providers, as well as consultants and others. Recognized as on the emerging elite, <laughs> emerging elite list last year. And it skyrocketed to the top of Utah 100 in 2022. Tell us a little bit about Hydrojug and what does how does it stand out to each of you? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we, we had a chance to meet with uh, Hayden, one of the founders, as well as um, some others on his team. And, and just great to hear the story. I mean, they obviously identified, uh, you know, uh, an issue, right? Uh, they, they identified an issue as far as hydra hydration and, and, you know, in this uh, active lifestyle, um, they saw something and, and built a solution around it. And, and you know, it's, it was interesting to see the, the Hydrojug, the, the product, and, and see the, the stylish and, and the, you know, the sleeves and, and you know, it, basically it's a water bottle, but it, it, they really took uh, that concept and, and really made uh, it into a, an exciting product, um, not only, you know, leveraging that product, but also, um, you know, really uh, focusing on a niche and a lifestyle and really uh, you know, uh, taking something that is now is in significant demand. One thing with regards to Hydrojug, last year they were on the emerging elite and the emerging elite is our 15 companies that Mountain West Capital Network identifies. Can you give us a little bit more information about what type of companies make it to that level? And do you often see them stay on the list in future years, whether it be the, the top 100 or other lists? Yeah, that, yeah, I think that's a, another great question as far as, you know, these are companies that have been in, in, um, in inception for less than five years. And, um, you know, what we saw as far as the, the 15 from, from this year, you know, really a, a trend in, uh, e-commerce and um, companies that really found a, a niche, uh, you know, for example, Kizik uh, is, a, is a technology based footwear brand that makes stylish hands free footwear. And they were uh, recently in Silicon Slopes and, and, you know, they again identified something um, leveraging technology, leveraging social media um, and obviously seeing something that is a need hands-free footwear you know many of us uh, we don't want to bend down we don't want to put the shoes on and they've found something that works so yeah let's go into that just a little bit hands-free footwear because again footwear doesn't go on your hands so the first thought right. is well you don't 
neat hands. But you're saying with regards to like tying your shoes, is that correct? It, that's exactly right. You slip it on, and um, you know they've they have men, women, children uh, footwear. It's it's actually a fascinating concept, and 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 one that you know if you've traveled a lot, I mean it, it is nice to not have to you know bend down and you know just kind of slip it on and, and off uh, in the airports. One of one of those uh, yeah unique pieces that continue. That you I didn't say. know you needed until you heard it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, any other sort of companies like that that really you know struck your fancy as being particularly innovative or interesting? Yeah, I think yeah. that you know Gab, Gab Wireless, uh, you know it's a it's a provider of safe technology and services for kids. You know, obviously, in this um, you know very uh, you know, I mean everyone has a phone, right? And and to have something that's safe that parents can trust, I, I think that's a it's another. Kind of innovative idea that again is is definitely a there's a need for it in the market sorry ryan go ahead yeah no that's a great company i mean the fun thing is all these companies on the list have an amazing and unique story the one i was maybe going to share is, is zova they're a they're a platform a software platform that really is trying to connect and solve some problems that we see in our healthcare space right they they are kind of a middleware communication and collaboration platform that really connects all of your healthcare needs, including your pharmacy, your your doctor, the patient, the insurance, and you know, you can do telemedicine, telepharmacy, telehealth, all of that right in this one platform. So it's kind of exciting to see what they're about as well. Right, now that's kind of interesting. Do they sort of create a web of relationships with providers and insurance companies, who, uh, who often whom don't like to talk to each other much? Do they sort of set out a, an array of contracts to try to pull that together? Yes, that's exactly what they're trying to do and, and really make it a one-stop shop for both the healthcare providers and the users. Very interesting. As the digital economy's grown, uh, online influencers' power in the marketplace has bolstered companies' progress. Talk to us about this phenomenon and what companies you've seen on the Utah 100 that may benefit from this. Yeah, I think, you know, we have all seen the transformational power that social media carries now. And, you know, it's evolved to be a place where people connect with, you know, those they admire and a hub, it's become really a hub where brands now are increasingly trying to connect with their target audience. And so this has really led to the discovery of different innovative marketing channels, especially those where influence marketing can be captured. And, and we see that with even those on our, you know, the top of our list. And, and Jason, you, you mentioned that with HydroJug. Yeah, it, it, you know, if you look at the, the, the many influencers that are supporting HydroJug, I mean, that, that certainly supports their significant growth over the last uh, six plus years. And there are many others. And, and you know, I think that's one of the exciting things about being part of this uh, Utah 100 event is to be, be able to witness so many companies that leverage social media in the right way. <clears throat> it's getting to be kind of hard to be successful as a new company without it. Um, That's right. You know, this year I think we have 38 companies that have been on the list for five or more years, and 10 of them have been on the list for more than a decade. Can we talk about some of those companies and what's the secret sauce they've got that enables them to sort of stay, you know, stay so relevant for such a long period? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, one of the the opportunities that I had in, in my role and, and Ryan and and others joined me, we, we have an opportunity to meet with some of these companies and uh, one in particular, Leighton Construction, you know, what an incredible story. You know, they've been on this list for over uh, 19 years. Um, and, you know, as we met with them, it was interesting to, to, to understand their story and, and, you know, certainly during the pandemic, to, to hear that, you know, they've had significant growth. And, and part of that is, you know, their partnerships and, and um, their customers. Um, also, I, I think what they've done is they've created a culture and, um, you know, the, the tone at the top, the leadership that is supporting that culture, um, it, it's evident that those are working and working extremely well. And um, just a, you know, great to see companies like Sportsman's Warehouse and Overstock.com and Zion's Bank and uh, Health Equity, as, as well as others that have been on this list for many years. And, and I think those, those things, culture, uh, their focus on people, the leadership within that company, and, and, and certainly innovation is, is key to, to their success as well. They've been able to innovate in times where there's been struggle or, or, or obstacles. Now I'm going to ask you a question that you're probably uh, not going to have a ready answer for, but let's give it a shot. Many of these companies yeah. start out um, by doing pitches to venture capital type firms or angel investors. As you look today at some successful companies, can you think of one where if you'd heard the pitch, you would have said, there's no way that one's going to work, but they've become successful anyway? <laughs> so that's, that's a great, great, that's a great question. I'll, I'll tell you one that, uh, that comes to my mind and this is one, I guess, that I've become a believer in because I wear their clothes, and that's Ann Collar. Um, you know, these guys have, have developed a, a dress shirt made from recycled plastic bottles that feels like you're wearing, you know, luxury athletic clothing. <laughs> and, you know, I've worn a lot of dress shirts in my day, and and to, to put one of these on and, and to feel how it feels, and, and it's water resistant, stain resistant, all the things that you hope for if you're going to be in a hot climate or otherwise, you know, otherwise it's, it's pretty amazing. I don't know if I would have believed them at the very onset uh, in that pitch if, if I hadn't worn it myself and felt and, and seen the, the product firsthand, but it's pretty amazing. And they're one of our emerging elite companies as well. One of the um, pieces I want to talk about is how you, you rank the list. You had mentioned, you know, you had opportunities to talk with certain companies, but the Utah 100, is that just based on numbers or are there other, how do you rank it and how do, what gets submitted for consideration? Yeah, I can yeah, tackle that. They, sure. Yeah, go for it. All right. I'll just tell you that, you know, the, each, each list, there's three different award categories. And Jason, I'll let you talk about the Utah 100 and the top revenue, but maybe just with the emerging elite, you know, that one, it is a bit more qualitative, we'll call it. We do look at their trajectory from a financial perspective, but, um, but there are some objective, you know, aspects to when we go out and interview and meet with these companies that we're looking just beyond their financial uh, kind of financials as a whole and, and looking at their leadership, looking at their vision, looking at their, their momentum that we see. And so some of that does get captured in that emerging elite. And the Utah 100 and, and the top revenue are a little bit different. Jason, you want to touch on those? Yeah, the Utah 100 is, is based on a weighted average of, of total dollar growth and percentage uh, growth. So you've got uh, that 
supporting the the Utah 100, and then you've got on the on the total dollar growth um, on the on the top revenue side or top 15 revenue side. So yeah, definitely, you know, and and again, I think uh, what differentiates uh, you know the the Utah 100 and the Mountain West Capital Network is, you know, we are um, you know validating and and obtaining you know the details and support. And uh, we've got committees that are lined up to make sure that that data is, is there's integrity in that data. And I'm really grateful for many people that were involved in, in making this happen because really this is a, a very huge committee that uh, spends a lot of time to support it. It does sound like a, a complicated process. You say it's a huge committee. How many people are involved and how, how many person hours do you think it takes to put, to put it together? I, I don't know. I, I haven't calculated the number of hours, but it, it is significant. And I, I would say in the committee, there's probably a, at least 30 to 40 people um, uh, that, that are involved. And, and again, we're, we're blessed to have a, a number of um, strategic sponsors that get involved as well as many others. Um, and then we have uh, Sherry Waldron, that's our executive director who um, has been phenomenal and, and such a great leader and, and really is, is the key to the success of, of this, this event as well as the other events uh, throughout the year. I know that two local companies from the Wasatch back made this year's list. One is Conductive Group from Heber and then Abode Luxury Rental in Park City. Can you tell us a bit about those companies and what helped them make the list? Yeah, I can jump in. That's a great question. It's fun to see the diversity that we have across the state. I mean, we had winning companies from Cache Valley down to St. George, and, and, and it's fun to identify a few right into Park City and, and Heber. Um, I think both of those companies, I mean, clearly found a niche in the market that really aligns with their, their creativity and their specialized skills. So if you look at Conductive Group, for example, you know, this is where they've taken really incredible intellectual property around the design for products and, and cases particularly that really protect against wireless and cyber threats. And, and that's, you know, two very relevant risks that we're all, you know, and companies are all dealing with right now and governments are dealing with. And so they've, they've found great success in that space. And I think for the other abode luxury rentals, um, you know, it would appear that their ability to really create a high-end experience for their customers and their, their owners is really that true concierge service is really what's setting them apart in the marketplace as well. So I think, you know, finding out what you're good at, what, what, what need might exist, and then aligning that with your skill set um, has really helped both of these companies with that niche market that they both serve. One thing I, I wanted to ask, with regards to these companies and, and being in Utah, how much do you feel that whether it be you know state policies funding or you know other unique pieces about utah make these businesses successful you know or could these businesses be successful anywhere uh, that's a great question and i i think that you know certainly as you look through the listing of the, the top 100 companies as well as the top revenue and emerging elite there is there are some patterns, and I and I think first and foremost, you know, there's a diversification of of you know technology. There's a diversification in sectors. Um, you know, I, I think that the the variety of you know, different, I, you know, as you look at the percentage of um, you know top 100, for example, 
you know, software e-commerce, you've got professional services, you've got wholesale retail. I mean, you've got just a great representation uh, within the number of, uh, within the sectors. And, and, you know, when there's a downturn, you know, you're not tied to one sector. So, you know, I think that the, that Utah has been very successful, obviously, um, in, in the ability to, uh, you know, develop businesses that um, can withstand, you know, downturns. And, and I, think, um, I think another thing too, I think there's just incredible people. And I've, uh, I've had the privilege of working, I work for a, a business consulting firm and I've had the privilege, privilege of working in this market for a number of years. And I, I think that there's just incredible people, uh, leaders. Um, there's, a, a, I think, a really good diversity of, of people that have moved into the market that have, you know, that, that are entrepreneurial, that, that are focused and, and that work hard. And I think those things have really supported the incredible success that we've, that we've benefited from in this state. We've been talking about the Utah 100 Mountain West Capital Network's annual list of the fastest growing companies in the state. Jason Roberts and Ryan Dent, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. You're welcome. The Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act, also known as the CARES Act, was signed into law on March 27, 2020. It included two programs to assist businesses with keeping workers employed, the Payroll Protection Program, otherwise known as PPP, administered by the Small Business Association or Administration, and Employee Retention Tax Credit, administered by the Internal Revenue Service. Claire Berger and Bud Clark with CBC Business Consulting join us this morning to help us understand more how businesses can still take advantage of these programs. Claire and Bud, good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Happy to have you here in the studio. Let's begin by having you tell us about the PPP funds. Can people still take advantage of these this funding source and how can they best use the award of funds? Well, most most businesses have already taken their PPP loans. And you know, the the CARES Act gave it a deadline. And so that deadline has now passed in 2021. And as a result, the PPP loan program is exhausted, as they say. So originally, when the CARES Act was passed, as you said, there were these two programs, PPP and ERTC. Uh, Employee Retention Tax Credit is what the ERTC stands for. And so what happened was, in the beginning, I had a choice. You could take PPP or you could take ERTC. PPP was much simpler program run through SBA, as you mentioned, through the banks. So almost everybody took PPP loans. It's, in fact, it's hard to find a business that didn't take a PPP mm. loan. Mm-hmm. So, but that was your choice. You took one or the other. So what's happened is in March of 2021, because obviously the, the pandemic lasted longer than legislators thought it would, uh, they said, well, let's l- open up that program. And so they did. So many of the businesses, in fact, the vast majority of the businesses we meet with go, oh, yeah, I've heard about ERTC, but we don't qualify. And in fact, they do. So just to, I guess, clarify specifically, if you did receive a PPP award, are you still eligible for a ERTC? Yes. Okay. So, which makes it really kind of, you know, that 
again, sort of the confusion is why we exist. We kind of help people navigate through that, you know, legislative little maze that they've set up. So what happens is your PPP loan is an offset, not dollar for dollar, but it's if you can't have both. So they credit you. An example would be um, a restaurant that we know here in town. Uh, we just finished their work and uh, they took PPP loans and they were forgiven. The owner went, like many, oh, I don't. You know, I met with my accountant, and I don't qualify for ERTC. And we always go, well, that was true a year ago. And how much did they qualify for? $551,000. My goodness. Okay, so what changed? If you say that was true a year ago, um, look, actually, let's back up one step. Many people are familiar with PPP and their loans, and through a process that you went through, you borrowed the money, and you paid it back. I'm oh, sorry, you didn't pay it back. The loan was forgiven. Okay, now we're talking about a tax credit. That's a, tax, a credit against what kind of taxes and how does it work, big picture? Big picture is you paid during the pandemic, you paid payroll and retained employees. So if you think of the name, it makes a little more sense. You're getting a credit for retaining employees. So, and they, there's a convoluted formula as I know this is a surprise that Congress passed something that had a convoluted formula, but there is, and you go back and you recapture, get a credit for that. Okay. And it's up to $26,000 per W-2 employee, up to. And so I'm looking at a dub, I'm, I'm paying an employee every week and every, or every two weeks and I pay them their salary, but there are taxes being taken out of that that I'm paying. Tell us what those taxes are that, that, that we're going to get credits for. What, what, what categories of tax? You're actually going to get credit for the payroll itself. So it's not just the offsetting tax. It's actually the payroll retention. And you can get up to... Now, we've never had a client, by the way, get $26,000 per employee. That's a huge number if you think about it. But we have had them get as Claire was just saying, you know, over a half a million dollars at a local restaurant here who said, I didn't qualify. And so this is a tax credit. So it's not that this money is being deposited into a bank. It's that it's being, uh, I don't know if the right word is leveraged, but um, against their current tax uh, bill. Uh, it, no, uh, it's taxes you've already paid. So you're going back when you do this, I'm sorry to get too in the weeds. <laughs> That's why we're. But you pay if you're pay, payroll, uh, you pay a 941 every quarter that you file, yeah. and that goes off, and and so you've already paid these taxes, and they're already on that 941. So it's not like there's a situation where you could trick the IRS to get money back that you hadn't already paid. It's right there. I can look at your 2020 941 and go, here's what it is. The IRS then says you can have up to 50% of that as a credit, and they send you this check back. And the important distinction is it is not a loan. It comes back as a check from the IRS to the business, and the business can use that money at their discretion. Now, a storyline to this is, you know, we ran into some restaurants in California who were completely shut down, as we all know. And these restaurant owners, they were borrowing money on their house to keep people paid and keep the business going. And 
I mean, there, you know, lady we talked to in San Diego was distraught. And, you know, she found out that she could qualify for this money. She comes back. It's not a loan. And she can now apply that back to debt that she'd incurred to keep the employees going. Okay, so uh, this is confusing, and I think it's helpful to our audience to, to hear it. And it's also helpful that they could contact you if they really wanted to go down another level and actually understand it. So I've got a typical employee. I'm paying him a, a five, uh, you know, let's see, let's, let's, let's make him a high-paid employee. I'm paying him $1,000 a week, $50,000 a year employee. And there's some taxes taken out of that. What is the nature of the calculation for the credit that would be reflected for, say, an employee like that? Well, when you're, you're paying payroll out, mm-hmm. $50,000 is the example, you're going to be able to claim up to that $26,000 threshold. A percentage of that comes back to the company, depending upon the calculation and PPP loans. So it can get a little convoluted. <laughs> and that's why, and I get what happens because we do this every day. Uh, the thing that's really important to know is that, you know, we work with businesses and nonprofits. And of all the things in the world that is the most gratifying for Claire and I is, you know, you, you go to a nonprofit, what could they do with an extra $100,000? How much good could that church do? Or how much good could that, you know, uh, shelter do for animals? So that's how we think about it. And it's with great pleasure that I say we were able to help the Egyptian theater uh, get their refund. So that that warmed our hearts because we love the theater and it was so sad when they had to shut down completely. So... And I think that's important and, and why, you know, you're here talking with us today is that this is a resource out there for businesses that, you know, I think we've all thought that, you know, a lot of this financial assistance or other types of programs have all been kind of worked through. But as you're saying, there's still money on the table for businesses to to find. Tell us how, you know, businesses get in contact with you and, and how you, you know, work with them and do you typically have kind of an initial you know conversation or yes uh they could reach me claire at cbcbusinessconsulting.com uh i I give my phone number out it's 561-702-9558 and i'd like to point out that we do there's nothing it costs nothing to find out if you qualify we gather all the documents they get uploaded into a secure portal and then we have a team of cpas that reviews this Actually, every file has three different CPA teams look at it. If they don't come up with the same number, they start all over. This is really important because people are concerned about audits. Mm. Uh, we provide audit packages. And it really, there's no reason not to apply. And again, the rules have changed. Many CPAs aren't even up to date on the rules. The CPAs we work with, this is all they do. Our firm has done about 8,300 8, files. Wow. We've given out about a billion dollars. That is fantastic. We've been speaking with Claire Berger and Bug Clark. They are with CBC Business Consulting. Thank you for joining us this morning on Mountain Money. You've been listening to KPCW's Mountain Money. Do you love Mountain Money? Let us know. Leave us a review.